I'm beginning a just a little three-week series leading up to Easter that I'm calling the Resurrection Road. The Resurrection Road. It's fascinating to read the Gospels and all that transpired as Jesus began to walk towards Jerusalem where he knew the end, at least the crucifixion, was coming. And all the different players involved and all the different people that were um, there and kind of not there as he headed towards this climax in his life. So I want to read Luke 19, 28 to 38. And tonight I want to talk about something that really struck me this week. What made Jesus cry? Three times in the Bible it says that Jesus wept. This is one of them. So let's read. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of, of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if someone says to you, hey, what are you doing with my colt? That's my paraphrase. You say, this is very powerful, the Lord needs it. If the Lord needs it, folks, you let go of it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying our colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And whoever owned the colt didn't say another word. They brought to Jesus through their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on top of the colt. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and of course, palm branches. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Now read this with me good and loud. Preach it to me. Blessed is he who, I'm sorry, I messed up. Let's start over. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Powerful. Father, we thank you right now for the word of God. We pray that you will open our hearts, open our understanding, and speak to us. Reach into our souls and touch us in the marrow of our being, Lord. And help us to walk with you as you approach the cross and the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. You need to listen. You're going to need it. Amen. The setting for the passages that we just read is the Sunday just prior to the crucifixion of Jesus later that week. Uh, The Lord Jesus and his disciples are making their way towards Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey, as we just read, as the prophet Zechariah had predicted centuries before. So as he rode in on that colt, on that donkey was prophetic fulfillment. Zechariah had written, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king coming to you, he is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm a little loud up here. Um, Tyler, thank you. 
Now, as Jesus rode down the road toward the capital city, two throngs, two groups of people uh, converged upon him. There was a massive crowd that was coming out of the city, and then there was another group that had been following him in sort of a uh, discipleship kind of way, and they had been particularly enamored and captured by the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And that's something that gets your attention because Lazarus had been in the grave four days and decay had set in. Rigor mortis was well underway. And yet Jesus spoke to that uh, dead man and raised him from the dead, showing that even if your body has undergone decay, doesn't matter to God, you're coming up out of the grave. So these two groups were making a big to-do about Jesus. Yet as the crowd shouted, Hosanna, I want you to understand tonight that Jesus knew full well that their affection was shallow and it was fickle and it was passing. He knew that. He was well acquainted with the fickleness of people and he knew what was truly in their hearts. The Bible tells us, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knows your heart and he knows mine. And he knows that we can pat him on the back one day and turn on him the next. Just ask Peter. He had already warned his disciples as they had set out for Jerusalem what awaited them when they got there, and particularly what awaited him. Listen to what he said in Mark 10, verse 33. He said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will rise again. Well, that's not a message that would give you a warm fuzzy as you're headed to Jerusalem, but that's what he said. Now, Luke records that as Jesus came near to Jerusalem, he looked across the Kidron Valley and wept over the city. He's on this donkey. He sees it. His eyes scan the city, and they fill with tears. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But how powerful it is, isn't it? I want you to listen closely to what he said as he wept because it really matters. He's he's about to tell us why he was crying. Listen carefully. He said, quote, Oh, that you knew today the terms of peace, but now they are hid from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now I want to pause here a minute and ask the question. Having read that, why did Jesus weep? What broke him up? Because you would think that with all the excitement and all the hosannas and all the palm leaves and all that was going on with his entry into the city, that he would have been happy. But he wasn't. He wept. You know why? Because Jesus always saw through the temporary moment into eternal realities. Jesus always looked through the natural and the carnal and the immediate 
And he saw prophetically into the future and he saw eternal realities. And what did he see? What did he see when he looked at Jerusalem and he looked past all these palm leaves and all these hosannas? What did he see when he looked? He wept, folks, because he knew the city was already under judgment. He knew the city was already under judgment. They had already passed the point of no return. He said so. God had already decreed over this city judgment. And he said, well, why were they under judgment? They were saying Hosanna and welcoming Jesus in their midst. Well, I'm going to let Jesus answer it for us tonight. I'm going to tell you why they were under judgment. And, you know, we've got to keep in mind that our God, we, we, we've been preached the love of God almost ad nauseum. Now, I love the love of God. I'm thankful for the love of God. But you know what? God is not only a God of love, he's a God of holiness. And because he's a God of holiness, he judges. Now, we don't like to talk about judgment. It's not a jump up and shout message. But folks, we've got to understand that if God were not a God of judgment, he is no God at all. If he didn't judge sin, then he's just a make-believe figment of our imagination. Now, let's all go home and forget this thing called church. But God's a God of love. And because he is a God of love, there is an opposite end to him, and that is he's a God of judgment because he is a holy God who cannot forever endure sin. So why were they under judgment as Jesus himself just told us in what we read? Well, I'm going to let Jesus answer it. And let me tell you why they were. First, they were under judgment because they did not know the time of God's visitation. Now, the word know doesn't mean they didn't know about his visitation. It means they didn't take advantage of it. They did not take advantage of God's visitation. Why were they under judgment? Because God visited them. He said, listen, he said, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. God had visited them in the person of Jesus Christ. He had paid them a visit. Watch this. He was born a stone's throw away from them in Bethlehem. He had healed their sick. He had raised some of their dead. He had taught them day and night. The Bible says like no man ever taught. He taught as one with authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees. There was power in his words, conviction in his words, beauty in his words, profundity in his words. He had performed miracles before their very faces only to have them judge him because he did it on the Sabbath. And Jesus knew, let me tell you what he knew, that this crowd crying out Hosanna would be crying out, crucify him, crucify him in just a few days. That same week, they would flip and turn on him. The man of sorrows who Isaiah identified him as wept because his people had closed their eyes to the truth of who he was and why he had come. They closed their eyes. Listen to what John 1.11 says. John 1 verse 11, he came to his own people. That means the Jews, Abraham's offspring. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. They rejected him. This broke his heart. And you know why it broke his heart? Because he knew the consequences of when God visits and you turn it away. And I want to tell you, God still visits people today in the person of Christ. 
I personally do not believe that a person dies on this planet that God does not at one time or another somewhere in their life visit them with a touch on their heart, with a word to their ear, with, with something that, 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 that there is a moment between them and God where they know that heaven is talking to them. There is an hour of visitation, ladies and gentlemen, because God is fair and God is merciful and God is good. There is an hour of visitation when God comes a-knocking. Jesus said it this way. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In other words, we will have a relationship. I will come into that person, eat with them, and they with me. We will have a relationship, a fellowship. He knocks on the heart door. He comes to our heart. He doesn't necessarily talk so much to our mind as he does our heart. We're sitting there, and all of a sudden we hear a message, or somebody shares with us, or we come across somebody who walks with God, or even alone with no one around, we suddenly become aware of the approach of God and that gentle knock on the door of our heart, and he is, he is wanting entrance into our life. He knocks on the heart door of people who are going in the wrong direction. I'm convinced of it. He will knock on the door of your heart before you do something where it's eternally too late. He will knock on the heart door of people who are in a dangerous place spiritually, about to cross over the line, about to step over a precipice, and he will come and knock on the door of your heart. He will come to the heart door and knock on the heart of people who are asking whether there might not be more to life than just going to work and coming home and taking care of the kids and trying to have some kind of a retirement and, and, and just living life. There's got to be more than this. And you know what? When you ask that question, it's very, very possible God's going to come knocking. He knocks. Jesus said, I am, here I am. I stand at the door of your heart and I am knocking. But I'm not going to knock forever. That's the message of what is happening to Jerusalem here. He knocks, but he's not going to knock forever. God in his mercy pays us a visit. God visits. Jesus knocks, but the Bible says we are the ones that must open the door. He will not force his way in. He's not like the devil. You give the devil, you open that door a crack, and the devil kicks the door in. But you know what God does? He just knocks. And he says, if you want me in your life, you're going to have to exercise your will and open that door and let me in. He knocked on the door of Jerusalem. He called to his own, but his own rejected him. Why are these things going to happen in Jerusalem? Why are they under judgment? Because they did not take advantage of the hour of their visit from God. They did not respond to his grace, didn't respond to his word, didn't respond to very God become flesh, walking among them, doing irrefutable miracles, and yet they rejected him. Now there's a second reason they were under judgment. They were under judgment because Jesus said himself, they did not know the terms of God's peace. Now the word know there, once again, doesn't mean they didn't know the terms of peace. It says they didn't take advantage of it. It means they, they knew, but they did not take advantage and dive in and enjoy the peace that comes from meeting God's terms. Jesus said to them, oh, that you knew today the terms of peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
Now, what kind of peace was he talking about? Was he talking about peace between the Jews and Rome? Was he talking about peace between one another? Uh, No, Jesus was talking about the terms of coming to peace with God. The terms of peace. Oh, that you had taken advantage of the terms of peace. Jesus had come to bring reconciliation between the world and God. That's why he came. Now, I could preach this out there uh, anywhere, on the street corner, in some business, and wherever. And a lot of people would jump up and they would say, but Jeff, why would there need to be peace between us and God? I'm good with God. I love God. I've got nothing against God. But do you know what the Bible says otherwise? Colossians 1.21 says, you were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Now I want us to pause and listen to that verse again. He's talking to those who had been saved and he's talking about the way they were, what their life had been like and what their relationship with God had not been. It says, you were once far away from God. You were his enemies. Why? What made me his enemy? I was separated from him by my evil thoughts and my evil actions. And they, my sin separated me from God. And I was on an enemy, in an enemy relationship, an adversarial relationship with God. And every human being on earth is in an adversarial relationship with God until they come to the only one who can put their hand in God's hand and reconcile them. Now, let me just give you the gospel in a nutshell. You see... When Adam and Eve sinned, we all died in sin. It reached down through the centuries, and Adam's fall affected us all. You can't get away from it. We are guilty by association first. Listen to the Bible, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death came in through sin, and in this way, death came to all people, Not some, not most, but all, because all sinned. We inherited the curse of sin from Adam. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find Adam. And I really hope I can have a few minutes with him and just sit and say, you do realize what you did. Now, I'm not here in heaven to condemn you, because I know there's no condemnation up here, but I personally want to kick you in the shins. Because we saw a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, Adam. You shouldn't have listened to your wife and she shouldn't have listened to the devil and you should have been watching over her instead of off doing something else. But that's another topic. We were born with sinful natures. Nobody has to teach a human being to sin. We sin as naturally as we sleep. We sin because we were born with a fallen nature. If you don't believe that, listen to what King David said. He wrote in the Psalms, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalms 51. He said, I didn't learn to be a sinner. I was born a sinner. I was born in sin, shaped in iniquity. 
I was born with a sinful nature. I inherited it from Adam, and there is no getting away from it. And because of that, my sin separated me from God, and your sin separated you from God. Before we were saved, we were enemies of God. It put a wedge between man and God wider than Death Valley. Jesus called it a great, impassable, impossible chasm. You can't go across from here to there. You can't reach the other side. You've got to have a bridge builder. And you know what the cross is? It's a two-plank bridge. And God drops it. From the beginning of the chasm to the other side. And if you want to get to the other side, get to glory, meet God, experience His life, you've got to come and walk across that cross. Thank God for that cross outside. I like that cross outside. We've got purple draped around it as a symbol of royalty, the royalty of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something, folks. Your answer is in that cross. Your destiny is in that cross. Your life is in that cross. Heaven is in that cross. Your forgiveness is in that cross. Your victory is in that cross. Defeat of death is in that cross. You coming out of the grave one day is in that cross. We became estranged from God, disconnected from His presence and alienated from His life. And that is the way they all are out there who don't know Him. That's why I want to see them saved. This Easter, we're going to put up that cross. We're going to present that cross. We're going to say, if you want to walk across this cross from death to life, from lost to found, from blind to see, here it is. But guess what? We were not only born in sin and shaped in iniquity, but we ourselves have also sinned. We've committed sin because we were born with a sinful nature. Anybody in here that's never sinned, I want to meet you. Listen to what the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The the Greek there is interesting because it's a present indicative. And what it means is we have all sinned and are constantly falling short of God's glory. James wrote, for if a person could keep all of the commandments and yet break just one, it would be like breaking all of them. So if you've broken one commandment in God's eyes, you've broken them all. The same God who said don't commit adultery said don't murder. He also said don't lie. He also said don't take my name in vain and so on and so on. If you break either of these commands, James wrote, you're a lawbreaker no matter how you look at it. Since we've all sinned and become separated from God, we will either make peace with Him or perish. That's the gospel. There is no in-between. There is no gray area. There is no other God. There is no other way. There is no coming back as something else and getting a second chance. It's given unto a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And you never know when your time's going to come. You have no clue. Go to now, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a city and buy and sell and get gain, James wrote, when you have no idea what tomorrow brings. What you ought to be saying is if the Lord wills, we will do such this or that. But all such boasting is vain. Since we have all sinned and become separated from God, we have got to come to Him on His terms, His terms of peace, the terms of peace Jesus was talking about. We must 
come to Christ. The Bible says God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. And when we repent, we are told in no uncertain terms by the Bible that there is only one Savior to whom we can turn for forgiveness. You can't get forgiveness from Buddha. You can't get forgiveness uh, from Muhammad. You can't get forgiveness from some other world religion or some other leader because nobody has spilled their blood for your sins but Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is the only one and the only way. And I know I should be preaching this to a stadium full of lost people, but I'm trusting you to go find the lost people and bring them in or you yourself go out there and tell them what you're hearing tonight. All of this pluralism and this crazy, it doesn't really matter which way you come as long as you're sincere, is deception. There is only one Savior. Listen to this. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Only one God. There's only one mediator. There's only one standing between heaven and earth on our behalf who can reconcile us to God, the man, Christ Jesus. When we turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, what a great day that is. You know what we've done? We've met the terms of peace that Jesus talked about. The terms that the Jews had rejected when we do this. The Bible says there is an incredible result. Let me read it to you. Romans 5, 1. When we repent and turn to Christ, since we are then acquitted and made right through faith, we are able to experience true and lasting peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, the liberating king. Peace is not Well, I mean, there is such a thing as not being in a war. It's great when nations are not at war, and that is a kind of peace. But the greatest peace is an inside job. The greatest peace is when you're at peace in your heart with God. And no matter what goes on around you, you have that peace that passes understanding. The peace that only He can give. Israel's peace was staring them in the eyes. But they rejected his terms. This brought them under God's judgment. The last reason for their being under judgment. Listen carefully to this one. Because a lot of people don't understand this. But I'm going to tell you. They were spiritually blinded. The last reason they were under judgment is they were spiritually blinded. Jesus said, oh, that you knew today the terms of peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Now the verb hid or hidden is in the passive tense. Let me tell you what that means. It means their blindness was done to them. It was put upon them. They were passive recipients of blindness. Now you got to know first and foremost that they were at first spiritually blind by choice. It was their choice to see the clear evidence of who Jesus was and reject it. Paul wrote about this in Romans 1. He said, but God shows his anger from heaven. Do you hear that? Judgment. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who, listen carefully, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them, but they suppress it. They push it down. Now, now you, you all had a jack-in-the-box when you were a kid, right? That and jack-in-the-box would pop up, remember? And then you had to push him back down and shut the lid on him. Perfect picture. Suppress. Imagine that Jack is truth. And instead of saying, hey, Jack, the first thing we do is we push and force him out of sight and put a lid on him. And if you think that's not what's happening to truth in our culture, when people do this, Listen carefully to me, church. I know this is a hard word, and I'm saying it as lovingly as I can, but we've got to understand this. See, when people do this, when they push the truth down and push the truth down and push the truth down, remove God from their eyes, remove God from their mind, remove God from their heart, live lives that are contrary to his will when they, when they want nothing to do with him, the day comes when God himself blinds them. Here's a principle. God gave this to me, I really believe. Blindness chosen becomes blindness imposed. It's very, very dangerous to take God's word and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Get it out of my sight. Get it out of my mind. Get it out of my heart. Get it out of my home. Get it out of my nation. Get it out of the schools. God will, God will for a season call you and speak to you and plead with you and convict you and do everything in the world to get you to turn. But eventually, blindness chosen becomes blindness imposed. A person or a nation can reach a point of no return. When they do reach that point, judgment is all that remains. Paul saw this very thing happening to people in the last days when Antichrist comes on the scene. Listen to what Paul said. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Paul said, speaking of the Antichrist, this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Here's how he's able to do it. Because they refuse to love and accept his truth that would save them. That's a strong word. But it's time the church got beyond sloppy agape and started understanding that we're dealing with a holy and a mighty and a righteous God who will allow himself to be pushed for a while. But after a while, God says, that's it. You've crossed the line. You've gone over the line of demarcation. You've gone too far. I know you're never going to turn. You're never going to love and accept the truth that would save you, that being my son. So listen to what it says in verse 11. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived, and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Now I want you to notice, God is the one who causes them to be deceived. God is the one who blinds them. When the two angels were around, were inside Lot's house. And it says, whoa, I almost lost my balance there. When the two angels were inside Lot's house, it said the men of the city surrounded it. And it was homosexual lust squared. 
they were demanding that the two angels be sent out. And they were going to kick the door in. And Lot came out and said, he said, I'll give you my, my daughters, but don't do this to these men. Because Lot knew they were angels. They said, get out of our way. We will have them. And what do those angels do? It says he blinded them. They blinded them. They blinded every man in that city. And even blinded, they still tried to get in. Blindness chosen becomes blindness imposed. America, I got to tell you tonight, I believe is pushing the limits, church. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our nation. What I'm sharing with you is a heavy word, but this is what I got straight out of the Bible as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. This is why he wept. I can't get away from it. I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible says. Where are we in America? We're sinning against incredible light. Jesus himself said, if Sodom could have heard what you've heard, they would have repented. Jesus said, Jesus said, and he named several different groups of people named in the Bible. If they could have heard what you've heard, they would have repented. America is sinning against such great light. We need to pray for our country. I'm grieved over it every day. I want to see God move in a fresh way in America every day because America has a great darkness spreading over it as we speak. America was birthed in the gospel. The great awakening that happened in the early 1700s prior to the Revolutionary War. There was a great move of God in the early American colonies when they were still British colonies, but they were in the Americas, in Philadelphia and Connecticut and different places where colonies had been established. They had a great, great move of God. It shook England and it shook America. America was birthed in the fire of Holy Ghost revival. Great light. When George Whitfield would announce that he was going to be coming and preaching in the Americas, and this is when everybody had a farm. There, there wasn't people living two feet from each other in these congested neighborhoods. Everybody had their own farm, their own land. But when it was announced that George Whitfield was coming, he would walk out to a crowd of twenty to 30,000 people. In Boston, 30,000 people showed out to see him. And I know it's true because Benjamin Franklin measured it. Who was a deist who never really fully accepted Whitfield's gospel, but he loved him, and he was his friend. He said, I heard about this orator, and I could not believe it, so I went to see for myself, and I measured off, I stepped off the crowd that this man was, was clearly heard by, and he was preaching to 30,000 people with no audio aid. He had a voice like a bell. God gave it to him. It carried the, the early American colonies were drenched in the gospel. And so the, the Great Awakening, I'm going to tell you, church, believe me when I tell you, there would be no America without the Great Awakening. The principal seeds that were in the Great Awakening, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, are all seeds that were carried by the writers and the framers of the Declaration. There would have been no Declaration of Independence as we know it without the Great Awakening. But America's always had a witness because as soon as the Great Awakening ended, 
around the mid-1700s, another one kicked in just a couple of decades later and called the Second Great Awakening. And that's where the camp meeting came from. And there would be preachers all throughout the West that would go and draw large crowds and God saved thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in that early pioneer America. But that wasn't it either. Because as soon as that had ebbed away, a man named D.L. Moody stepped onto the scene, a Chicago shoe salesman who got saved. And got a heart for souls. And he began to preach to great, great crowds of people. And along with him, the prince of revivalists, Charles Finney. Both of them preaching to the Americas, the Northeast, the Midwest. Drenching and saturating America in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the fires of Holy Ghost revival. And as soon as Finney and Moody went to be with the Lord... 20th century began with a converted baseball player named Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday stepped on the scene and he could preach in a way that I, I can't even mimic. He would dance on one foot and, and he would go into these contort. He would jump on top of the pulpit. And great, great crowds came to hear Billy Sunday, the converted baseball player. He preached to more people in his day than anyone had ever preached in the whole history of America it, it, it says, I read that probably somewhere around 100 million people through his lifetime heard him preach in person. 1.25 million people registered as coming down to receive Christ in his meetings. This was happening in America. He was famous. He was a household name. God has never left America without a witness. And then came two world wars. And right on the tail end of two world wars that tore the guts out of us in Europe, along came another one, Billy Graham. He put up a great big tent in 1948 in Los Angeles and started preaching to a couple of thousand people. And he preached and he preached. And it went first one week, then two weeks, then three weeks. And then finally, William Randolph Hearst, who owned a huge newspaper chain, went and heard Billy Graham. And he gave all of his newspapers an order. It was two words. He said, Puff Graham. And Puff Graham meant, I want you to write about Billy Graham and be nice to him. That was the days when the media. <laughs> they said Puff Graham. And Billy Graham was splashed all over every paper in the United States of America and around the world. And he has preached now. He's, he's going to preach in a few months. He's preaching again at 95 for his 95th birthday. He's bringing the gospel into living rooms all over this country. God has always given a witness to the United States of America. And yet in spite of this, we're spiraling into moral perversion, financial insanity, turning everything upside down, making good bad and bad good and righteous unrighteous and unrighteous righteous and moral immoral and immoral moral. I feel like the lunatics are running the asylum. I wonder what world I'm living in sometimes. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm getting a little carried away here on Saturday night. Why did Jesus weep? Because as he entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he knew. That 40 years from that very moment, the Romans would surround Jerusalem.
Over a million Jews would be slaughtered. The temple would be burned to the ground. And the very city in which he stood would be totally decimated. God's judgment. Because they knew not the hour of their visit. They knew not the terms of peace. And they chose to be blind at first and then were made blind as a judgment on them last. And what do we take away from this? God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today. Everybody say today. Today is the day of salvation. The devil's favorite phrase is someday. God's favorite word is today. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Can you stand with me tonight? And I want us to come to the Lord and we're going to ask God to save some folks. You heard tonight the gospel. Undiluted, unpolluted, uncompromised, that's it. You heard the gospel. And there are many, many, many out there who would perish tonight if they died. But God has a plan for them. We're going to believe God for that plan. You can say, Pastor, I have thought of somebody, and I want to name their name. Can you just put your hand up? Let me see. A sister, a brother, a spouse, a child, a parent, a coworker, a neighbor. Everybody knows somebody. All right, we're going to pray right now. If you want to come to the altar and stand down here with me, you come right now. Come. And some of you may need to come to Christ with all of your heart. You've heard this gospel message and there's a question mark. Have I ever been saved? Or maybe you had an experience with Christ many years ago, but you have drifted. Listen, it's time to come back. Time to come home. Today is the day of salvation. So if that's you, I want you to come as we just stand here and wait a moment. And we're going to wait for you and we're going to believe God to give you that peace. You know the terms of peace. Let's take advantage of that peace. Thank you, Lord. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name with people on our heart. People whose name you know. It's our dad. It's our mom. It's our brother. It's our sister. It's our spouse. It's our it's our renegade child. It's that coworker. It's that neighbor we've known for years. And Lord, every time we look at them, we know that they do not have the salvation we have experienced. Only by your grace. And Lord, we pray for them right now. And let's lift our hands. And I want us to give the Lord their name. Say, Lord, I bring to you. Now name their name. Just name their name.
in Jesus' name. Lord, we bring them to you, hear their names, and we pray that you will give us a time and a place to invite them to Easter or to just go right ahead and talk to them about Jesus. We pray for a divine opening in the conversation, a divine opportunity. We pray that, Lord, this coming Easter, many of them will be in these chairs and will hear the gospel and will be touched by the Holy Spirit and will come. We pray for it in the name of Jesus that you will rip the scales off their eye and tear down the strongholds in their mind and and break through the darkness with your light and speak to them. We ask you to do it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. With our heads bowed for just a moment. You can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm not sure if I've ever had an experience of salvation with the Lord, but I hear the terms of peace, and I want to take advantage of those terms. Or I've drifted, and I want to come home, and I want to take advantage of the terms. I want to leave with God's peace in my heart. Today is your day. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right where you are. And I want to pray for you. Let me pray for you. And we're going to believe God to touch you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Lord, we just thank you for hearing us tonight. And we pray that, Lord, we will see a miracle in the days to come. The miracle of your salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight.